0: at orderct.com slash easter24.
1: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
2: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendrick Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is Israel in the middle of the Middle East. And, uh, uh, and we have a wonderful expert to discuss this with us, Joel Rosenberg, who's actually um, in Israel. He lives in Israel and he's been there. How long, Joel, how long have you
0: been in Israel now? Well, as we record this, it's been about eight and a half years, Daryl. In fact that, that we've actually lived here like as citizens, as right. dual citizens, US and Israel. Yeah.
2: Okay. So so I, I guess that makes you a quasi
0: local. Uh but well, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming I I sadly the first seven years were the seven fat years. So I'm I'm hoping to try to turn that into the seven lean years. It's not going so well, but anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we're we're becoming locals. So. Uh Yeah, yeah, getting you getting used to functioning, et cetera. So, and and dealing with
2: people coming in and out of Israel who are visiting and all that kind of you. And then of course you you globetrot. So let 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 me let's talk personally for a second and continue this, and and that'll set a context for our conversation. So you've you've been in Israel, but you've been busy um, helping to connect um, different groups of evangelicals, really to. People in in not just in Israel but in the nations around Israel. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Well, we moved uh, to Israel about, as I said, about eight and a half years ago, or at least when when you're you know, it basically was it was August of 2014. So whenever your podcast airs or whenever people are listening to it, that'll give you some context. Uh, August 2014. I was a best-selling author uh, in the United States before this, novels, mostly political thrillers and and non-fiction books and have continued writing. That's my main gig uh, as a, as an author, uh, also as a journalist and uh, as a speaker. but but a few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago now, I wrote a series of political thrillers about ISIS. Um, Nobody had really heard of it at the time. Uh, You'll recall that President Obama at the time in 2014 was saying uh, what became ISIS, al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time, was really a JV squad, meaning it wasn't really a serious threat. I don't say that as a partisan point. I'm simply saying as context. but. Several CIA directors that I knew that were reading my books um, told me, "No, it's a real thing. You should write, you know, some series, you know, some, some some political thrillers about the threat that they pose." The reason I say it, Daryl, is because I decided to write a series about uh, ISIS capturing chemical weapons in Syria. And then preparing to launch a series of genocidal attacks against Israel, against the United States, and against Jordan. That's where the series begins: against King Abdullah, whom ISIS is trying to assassinate in this in the series of novels. They want to assassinate him, they want to destroy his palace and take over Jordan. It, that's why the novel's called the third target, because Iraq was their first target, Syria was their second target, and then what's the third target? Well, in the novel, it's Jordan. The reason that's interesting is because King Abdullah ended up reading the second novel in the trilogy. Uh, one of his advisors had happened to pick it up in Heathrow, London, was going flying to Washington to meet the king and meet President Obama. And the advisor had no idea who I was. He just saw the book in a bookstore in Heathrow Airport. It looked interesting. He bought it. He sits down on the plane heading to Washington, heading to see the king, and oh my gosh, The king is a named character in the book. So what happened was, right, uh, the, 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 the advisor lands in Washington, goes to the hotel room, the suite where the king is staying and says, Your Majesty, you have to read this. Why? Because you're in it. What do you mean I'm mean, in it, it? It looks like a political thriller. It's a novel, right? It's not yeah, it's a non book. He yeah. goes, I know, but you're a character in the book. What do you mean I'm a character? <laughs> no, you're a named character. I don't understand that. Well, neither do I, but you should read this. And the king actually read it. Um, and rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, <laughs> Daryl, he he invited my wife and me, he, this, this is now in 2016, to come for five days to Amman. Uh, and 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 meet with him and his senior leadership, and that was pretty stunning, right? I'm yeah. I'm an Israeli, but I'm also an American. I'm Jewish on my father's side. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm an outspoken evangelical. What in the world am I doing in the palace? The palace, by the way, that I had fictionally blown up <laughs> in the novel <laughs> series. So he, he certainly had fun uh, poking with, at me about that. Yeah. And anyway, it was just a, such an interesting conversation. He's a direct descendant of Muhammad. Uh, so at the end of five days, uh, the last dinner was a private dinner in his private palace. It was two and a half hours. Just fascinating. And I said, Your Majesty, I I, I hope you understand that I have great respect for you. I, you know, I wasn't I, I'm, I'm writing this as a as a worst case scenario, not something that I'm predicting or wanting. He said, no, no, I get it. He said, but I said, but so rarely does an evangelical who loves Israel um but is intrigued with the Arab side. How often do we get a chance to sit with a monarch, the longest-serving monarch, by the way, in the Arab world, and just get to talk to you and your team for for days at on end? I said, would you ever consider inviting some other evangelical leaders over to meet with you and sort of have a similar experience that I that Lynn and I have had? And he said, let's put together. A delegation. That's what he said, and I said, I'd I'd be honored. So this set into motion what has now become seven delegations to Jordan, two to Egypt, one of which you were on, right? two to Saudi Arabia to meet the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the future king, uh, one to the United Arab Emirates, one to Bahrain, and one to Israel. So it's been fascinating and completely unexpected.
2: And what I think it reflects that's an important value here is it creates an avenue for dialogue and discussion and getting acquainted that, generally speaking, might not happen otherwise and just is helpful to
0: everyone involved. Fair? Yeah, very fair. In fact, to be clear, when I say it was unexpected, it was unexpected, but it wasn't unprayed for. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, when we moved here to Israel, I thought, well, Lord, how do I love my neighbors now that these neighbors are actually physically quite close like yes that means the palestinians so how do i do that as an israeli uh that means israeli arabs that means you know it, it means orthodox jews and all for orthodox jews but it also means the the people and the leaders throughout this region and remember, this is all pre-Abraham Accords. This is before right. this new era of peace was breaking out. So I just started praying, and King Abdullah was the one that I started praying for. Lord, you are a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. You can say no, I get that, but would you open up a door for me to meet with the King of Jordan? I just find him interesting, and I want to you know, get to know him and pray for him, and I'd like to be an ambassador for Jesus, for you, Lord, to him. It's a crazy prayer. Uh, even one of the guys on my board uh, of our nonprofit ministry, the Joshua Fund, told me years later, I thought you were nuts, and I love you. I'm on your board, but <laughs> this is not going to happen. So again, we off- I-, I encourage our-, our staff, our team, our board <laughs> to pray crazy prayers. I call them audacious prayers. The Lord doesn't have to answer them, right? But, but the question is, sometimes we don't aim high enough and asked the Lord to open doors as Paul prayed. I mean, he wanted, to, he wanted to be a witness for Jesus, an ambassador for the Lord to Caesar Nero. So King Abdullah doesn't seem so <laughs> difficult by comparison, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so yes, I, most of us are not going to have those opportunities, but it doesn't mean we don't want to lean in and ask the Lord, how can I get to know my neighbors, even though they totally disagree with me on Theology and, and maybe on politics and various ways, but where is their common ground? And how can I how can I love them? How can I understand them? How can I be a blessing to them? Um, and certainly a witness if the Lord, if you'd open that door. And I, whether that's in a neighborhood in a, in, in Dallas or anywhere in the United States or around the world, certainly here in Israel, Jesus did command us to do it. So sometimes we're not sure how. We have to start in prayer. Yeah,
2: well, it's a great story. And of course, um, uh, the trip to Egypt is one of the probably one of the highlights of my own uh, life and experience. And, um, you know, what you discover as a part of it is the nature of the global church. I mean, we spent a lot of time, we were there in Egypt to dedicate a Christian cathedral in. Uh, I guess the government district of Egypt just outside of Cairo, which was a primarily a Coptic church, uh, and uh, because Coptic is the primary form of Christianity in Egypt, and, uh, you know, the whole trip was fascinating. Well, that's a whole – we actually did a podcast on that visit, but that's a whole other conversation about what's going on there, but let's set – let me do one more question
0: that one thing i just have to say daryl because for those who may have missed that other podcast let's just say how how often is it that two jewish people get to stand before the leader of egypt and say let my people come yeah you know (laughs) instead of let my people go and i god is opening crazy doors it's a it's a time of it's a time we have to be trusting him to think, Lord, what, what do you want to accomplish? That maybe we're thinking too small. Yeah, and of course,
2: one of the things that that accompanied that particular event in Egypt was a huge ceremony beforehand, dedicating the entire complex. You know, because we because it came with a trip to the church, but also a trip to the mosque, and right. uh, um, and 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 asking the question from a government leader. How can these people live together nonviolently? And uh, which is. Basic question, and uh, and so uh, a very fascinating fascinating trip. Let me let me put one other piece of background in place, and then we can turn our attention to Israel in in sure. particular. And that is, you mentioned the Abraham Accords, and you've mentioned the way in which actually um, the way in which the Arab world is responding to the presence of Israel now, at least some portions of it, is very very different than what used to be. So why don't you as quickly sketch that map out for us?
0: Yeah, so one of the delegations that I was invited to to bring into the region was to the United Arab Emirates. Um, And this is a small but incredibly wealthy and dynamic and progressive in the true positive way. I'm not using American politics here. Really making enormous progress. I mean, sending rockets to the moon and, you know, and inviting the first ever evangelical delegation, which I led to the Emirates ever in their history, inviting the Pope to preach in a stadium, um, you know, buying F-35 fighter jets from the United States and making peace with Israel. But but before all that I was sitting there in the palace in Abu Dhabi the capital of the UAE with this group of evangelical leaders uh, you unfortunately you weren't on that particular trip but we had this opportunity to sit for 2 hours with the the the, the top leader in the UAE and one of the we we asked him a range of questions but one of them was listen we love Israel and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're never gonna—you're not gonna change us on that. And I don't think you want to. But we also love Arabs. We love Muslims. And we—but we—one of the things we're curious about is who's going to be the next Arab leader to make peace with Israel. Because at that point, 2018, we haven't—we hadn't seen an Arab leader since King Hussein of Jordan in 1994. So there'd only been two peace treaties: Egypt in '79, Jordan in '94. We said, who's going to be the next Arab leader to make peace? Now, this was just almost a boilerplate point, just to say it, because there we were. And uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the, uh, the sheikh who's the head of the country, leans forward and said, Joel, it's going to be me. We were shocked. And uh, we said, why? What w-? And he, he began to explain that he's ready, that he decided it's in the national interests of the UAE uh, to make peace with Israel, to have trade, technology, tourism, foreign direct investment. Yes, there are still political disagreements with Israel, but he said, we're you know, we're going to move forward anyway. And we were, unfortunately, that was off the record. So we couldn't walk out of the palace with the biggest story in Arab-Israeli peacemaking in a generation and say it. And we didn't. We kept that confidence. But we prayed. And two years later, it was MBZ who made the first move to make peace with Israel in August of twenty uh, 2020. And uh, I wrote a non-fiction book that came out about a year and a half ago called Enemies and Allies, where that is a story that I take everybody inside each of those rooms, with each of the delegations that I led, so you can see it, you can hear the conversations. Those conversations were off the record then, but they're on the record now, because it's already done. Uh, it's a fascinating way for people to get a sense, as a Jewish follower of Jesus, what would it be like to sit with all these leaders? What are they saying um, about religious freedom? About uh, the Saudis allowing churches in Saudi Arabia when they don't have them? So, uh, and and of course, we sat with you know top Israeli leaders, including. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as well. So I think people will find enemies and allies a a way of taking this conversation you and I are having and expanding it out and getting much more details.
2: Yeah, there there are also some conversations I think happening between uh, religious leaders in the country at the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, not this year but a couple of years ago. Um, we had a meeting uh, with a group that's focused on Christian and evangelical relationships with, with Muslims, and we brought in some Muslim leaders to interact with in that event and have a conversation, and we're working our way towards uh, a, a joint event uh, that's going to be sponsored uh, in the Northeast. So, uh, so yeah, so there, there are these conversations that happen. They're rare. They're very rare, but they exist, and they um, – the The potential for them is is significant, so so that kind of sets the plate of you know what's around Israel, what's surrounding Israel. Of course, everyone's familiar with the region in general and and the the tensions that are a part of it. Uh, but let's talk about Israel in particular now. And um, the I'm going to ask some general demographic questions, and then and then we'll dive into particular challenges of what is going on with the church and the messianic movement in Israel so let's start in general uh first of all how large a country is is israel and i guess the second question is and how quickly is
0: it growing sure well uh, geographically we're only about the size of new jersey which we're my wife is from. I'm a New Yorker, so when I met her at, uh, at Syracuse University, which is in New York, I had to had to get rid of all my New Jersey jokes. Because yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, <laughs> our relationship, but it's about the size of New Jersey. Now you have to think if if you live in New Jersey, fine, wonderful. Uh, you'd have a you'd have this, a seashore, but you'd all maybe New York would hate you, and Pennsylvania would want to annihilate you. Uh, <laughs> but maybe a peace with 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 Delaware, like so. That's the that's the geographic space. It's not that it's not that much space. Right. But that's a good one in terms of size. We're just coming up close to ten million uh, citizens now, and about eighty percent of that, uh, roughly, is is Jewish, and about twenty percent is Arab. Most of the Arab uh, citizens are Muslims, but there is a significant uh, Christian Arab population. Not all born again; uh, mostly, um, maybe from a more nominal uh, or historic background. Let's say, to be fair, uh, uh, Roman Catholic, sh- to be sure, but a range of Coptic uh, uh, faiths uh, or denominations as well. So then, of course, the Messian. So that's about 10 million people, roughly, and um, and then the believing community. Uh, if you if you ask the Israeli government, they'll say there's about 125,000 Christians in the country. That would cover everybody of any type of denomination, whether they're born again or not. If you look at the Messianic community, particularly the Jewish believers of Jesus, right, um, that's what you're asking. And that number is roughly 25 to 30,000. There was a, a a pretty good study done by the Israel College of the Bible, the main Bible institute here, Um the Dallas Theological Seminary of Israel. Um, and uh, their study was that in 1948, when Israel was miraculously and prophetically reborn, according to the Scriptures, um, there were only 23, 23 known Jewish followers of Jesus in the entire land of Israel that's at the a, time. That's just a two-digit number. <laughs> that's a two-digit number, and, uh, and and amazing because some of them are still alive. We know them, and it's like knowing it's, for an American, it would be like knowing a Christian that stepped off the Mayflower, like mm-hmm. to know some of the original people in the country that loved Jesus. It, it's really extraordinary. Um, today, there are about twenty-five to 30,000 believers. So that's encouraging. Some of that is natural growth, people having kids and raising them to know the Lord, and some of that is immigration. Um but but most of it is, uh, or or let's say a significant portion, are people, Jews, coming to faith in Jesus. It doesn't happen as much here in Israel as it does in the United States for a number of reasons. The main reason is, in the United States, there are so many followers of Jesus who love their Jewish neighbors and dentists and lawyers and doctors and whatever, that there's just so much more witness possible. We're a very small community in a very large country. But um, there, but there is growth, and it is exciting. And then there's a roughly four to five thousand actual evangelical Israeli Arabs. Uh, yeah, so that's the the short version. Okay, uh, let me go
2: back to the to the 10 million for a second, because the other question that's kind of in the back of my head is, uh, wh- what kind of immigration is going on in Israel, and how is that population growing? In other words, I-, I seem to remember a time not too long ago where if I had asked you that question, the answer would have been 8 million, and so um, – uh, so, and, and I guess underneath that question is, with Israel absorbing people from uh, – primarily Jewish people, obviously, from around the world who come to Israel – make aliyah is, is the phrase um, – uh, that you also get a very interesting ethnic mix of people whose national backgrounds are quite diverse, and probably most people aren't even aware of that being part of the equation in Israel. Can you talk about
0: that a little bit? Sure. so let me break that down in a couple of pieces first yes the immigration issue uh we're the uh we've got the highest degree of uh, immigration into Israel of any uh OECD industrialized country okay so um that you have a steady flow 20 to 40,000 Jews a year are coming in and uh most of them historically are from uh, maybe the Eastern Bloc, uh, the former Soviet Union, um, and then of course from Europe, and very few from the United States. We're we're learning we're some of the few that have that have come and actually become citizens. Because most Jews who decide to leave their country and come to actually live as a citizen, not just buy an apartment or send their kids to summer camp here or come for high holidays, they're coming because they're afraid. Because they're leaving a country that either is actively anti-Semitic or anti-Semitism is spi- anti-Semitism is spiking, and they're 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 nervous, and they decide to come here. Americans, I mean, I think that's going to that's changing. That's a, that's a separate issue, and we may want to talk about that. Uh, I think anti-Semitism is spiking, and we're going to in the United States, and we're going to start to see more Americans coming. But right now, most Americans think. Why would I go to Israel? I got a great life in the United States. But prophetically, God's going to pull people, Jews from all countries. Uh, and he says in Jeremiah, first, I'll send the fishermen to so sort of sort of draw you in. And then I'm going to send the hunters. If you won't come in voluntarily, you're not going to thwart my plan. So I'll, I'll force you to come back to Israel, just like he forced us out at the beginning. So that's significant and right now you're seeing a lot of of course ukrainian and russian jews coming in yeah but that's french going jews, next go ahead the french jews are coming up now that's the first time i think we're seeing a a western european country you know since since world war ii and the end of the holocaust mm-hmm. um where we're seeing a european jewry start to come in and say and, and and you know it's challenging for them but it, it's good for us uh we've got great patisseries and boulangeries and ch- chocolateries and you know it we're the, the, the we're getting good uh good food out of this equation but uh, that is a dynamic and of course jews have come from arab world over the last 50 or 60 years 75 years um but we're not seeing much of that now because there aren't many jews left in the arab speaking world that takes us then to two other points. One is that we also have a high birth rate here, higher than any other OECD industrialized country. Uh, uh, Arabs are having more kids. Uh, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox are having a lot of kids. But even Israelis generally have more than, than West Europeans, let's say. Um, so that's cr- causing the population to grow uh, as well. Now, the one other thing is the, is the multicultural di- diversity. Yeah, we've got Jews literally coming from all over the world because God dispersed us from to all over the world. And one of the things that does is create a very interesting cultural mix. It also creates uh, fascinating ranges of, of, of food and culture and language. It's also great, for I'll say, Daryl, for our intelligence services, because you don't just have People who kind of seem like they know a little bit about China, they're Jews who are Chinese, Mm -hmm. right? So they come back here and they, you know, uh, over the years, they, they look Chinese, they sound Chinese, they know the language, they know the culture. Or Iranian Jews have been great for our intelligence services. And ultimately, I believe, you know, setting the intelligence services aside it's great for the church. In time, it's 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 taking some time, but in time, you're going to have believers, Jewish believers in Yeshua uh from all over the world who live here, but ha- they know the language, they know the culture, they know how to be a witness to their other cultures and their countries. We don't see much of a heart and a mindset yet uh, in the b- believers here to be in short-term or long-term missions outside the country, unfortunately, but I believe that's part of our calling to be a light to the nation, so I believe that will come in time, but we're not seeing much of it yet.
1: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
2: So um, let's think about this mix. For So so someone comes from, say, the Ukraine or uh, out of Russia or Poland or whatever, wherever they may be coming from in the Eastern Bloc, they come not generally not knowing hebrew and so they're i mean they are they are starting their lives again from scratch
0: yeah and especially when we saw the collapse of the soviet union when when the when the, the soviet flag literally came down over the kremlin on christmas day of all times uh, in 1991 and once the doors fully opened and, and and jews trapped inside the soviet empire were were suddenly free to go wherever they wanted a million Jews came here to Israel uh, this in the early years of the of the 1990s. now it was incredibly disruptive in one sense, right economically and in terms of how do you build housing for them all and and create jobs and and not just government you know makeshift job but real work and what do you do when somebody comes and they're a they're a, a nuclear physicist or you know a chemical engineer, but they don't speak Hebrew and therefore, they have to get a job as a street sweeper or you know a janitor, it's humiliating. And so that was a huge, uh, it showed Zionism at its strength, I would say in the modern era, where a country decided to open its doors to a quarter. Imagine, imagine the United States opening the, its doors, I guess it sort of has opened its doors, but not officially, to bring an extra 25% of the population into the country. For the United States, that'd be like 75 or 80 million people in two or three years, right? That's not, even with the, what's going on in the U.S. southern border, that's not what, it's not, it's not it's even that close. Yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> over time, right? well, it's been about 25 or 30 million, but yeah. over 25 or 30 years. Right. So, so here it was about 25% of the population, about a million people coming in, in about a three or four or five year period. And it, it changed everything. So you still have Russian speaking Jews. Now we have to be careful not to call them Russians, because the Ukrainian Jews don't want to be called Russians. And this is a tension in the country. It's a tension in the the kehilots, the, the congregations, the believing congregations here. So there's a whole new dynamic because of what Vladimir Putin has done in invading and raping and pillaging Ukraine. But it's also... He's one of the hunters. I mean, he's intending it for evil, but God is using it for good, both to bring Jews into the kingdom, but also bring them into the country, right? So he's he's sort of driving Jews out of Ukraine and even Russia here, And but, but it takes time. Now, in a fairly short period of time, though, one of the interesting dynamics or nuances is – Often, it's the kids who learn the Hebrew first. Mm-hmm. They're going to school. They're learning it they, so they can make friends, right? And so then there becomes a new tension inside the family. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, Saba and safta, they don't know Hebrew, or they don't know it well. The kids know it, and they want to be part of the society. They don't want to be ghettoized as, well, we're Russians. And so I, I'll say it myself, although it's not exactly the same. My boys, all four of them, they know Hebrew. And I'm incredibly proud of them. I'm terrible at it, partly because I came in at the time I was 47 with a full career and right and 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 a, and a husband and a father of four. And as you said, I, I my a lot of my time is spent in the states. So my wife would tease me sometimes mercifully and sometimes not. Like Joel, did you make Aliyah to Israel or to flight 90 91 on United back and forth? You know? <laughs> To Newark, and because that's where my that's where my business is, that's where my books are mostly sold. So that made it hard for me to learn Hebrew, and I still I'm not good at it. The good news is English is the business language here, and Jerusalem particularly, it, you know, you can get by, but you don't have to go too far outside of Jerusalem to really, really need Hebrew. So I'm I'm one of those classic immigrant fathers, uh, Daryl, where my. My, you know, one of my sons has to go with me, and I'm like, What did they say? What are they? Yeah, and I'm grateful that they've got it. Fortunately, they're they are. They are honoring their mother and father and helping us through this, but it's not easy, and it's not easy for these immigrants. Yeah, that's who, not unlike okay. the kind
2: of immigration experience yeah. that uh, particularly uh, Asians had coming from China, et cetera, in the United States, where the second-generation child is the bridge and then the third-generation child is actually, in some ways, totally assimilated to the culture and, and, and that kind of thing. I, it, it, yeah, it And it produces its own set of interesting – I have one more general question before we turn to Messianism in particular, and that is – so you've got this wonderful range and mix in the country, and it seems to have produced uh, within the Jewish community um, real um, different approaches to how to handle Israel's position in the world. Um, You've got a a segment that that is I, if I can say it this way, classically Zionist, and you know, kind of <laughs> um, keep Israel great again, and uh, and then you've got another group that that is concerned about how Israel interacts with its unique position as a nation, with surrounded by all these Arabs and Palestinians. Talk about that a little bit, because it, it looks like it's about
0: a 50-50 proposition in the country. Well, it's a it's it's a it's a huge challenge right now, and we certainly have uh, very deep political divisions, um, uh, which evidenced by the fact that we had five elections in the last four years. Exactly, neither side could really figure it out. It's not exactly a, a left-right deci- divide, right? To be clear, there isn't much of the political left here anymore. The country was founded by atheists, agnostics, leftists, and quasi-communist-socialist. That's how the country was founded. But over time, the country has rejected those ideas almost entirely. And so you've seen a collapse of the political left. Uh, it's, It's become a very free market, very robust free market society. And it's become a very, in terms of security and religious identity, respect for faith in God, even if it's, you know, a number of different shades of that, the country's moved from the left to the center, from the center to the right, from the right in some cases to the far right um, and and sometimes crazy in some areas. So it it is a center right country politically and religiously. The number of religious Jews is is rising significantly here. And that's not just emigration. And part of that, of course, is birth rates, but it's really that Jews who are secular are actually feeling like that's not working for them. They're actively searching for faith in God, but some are very turned off by ultra-Orthodox and even Orthodox Judaism, so they're looking in other places. That's one of the reasons they're looking at is Yeshua actually the Messiah? So there's a number of things going on there. Um, Now, in terms of relationships to the outside world, there's a general desire by most Israelis, not all, but most, we want to have peace with our neighbors. We are not trying to take over more territory or start wars. It, the country was mostly, let's give land and it, if we'll get peace. But the reason they moved rightward on, on security and political issues was because every time um, a, a center-left politician gave land for peace, they didn't get peace. We got rockets and terrorists and suicide bombers. So that shifted the population from, look, we want peace, but we are not. Uh, going to be suckers. The, the worst thing to be called in Israel is a friar, hmm. like a sucker, uh, like, a, like a, such an idiot that you'd get... Friars, not into. a monk. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. It, 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 it's a it's, yeah. a, it's a Hebrew, it's probably term, but it, it means like you've just been duped. Mm-hmm. And so having given southern Lebanon back to Lebanon, and then Iranian-backed Hezbollah terrorists moved in and fired 4,000 missiles at us. People are like, well, that was a dumb idea. And then, you know, Israel gave the Gaza Strip to the Palestinians without asking for a peace treaty in 2005. But what did we get? 15 or 20,000 rockets and missiles fired at us. Israelis are not willing to do that anymore. So do they want to make peace with the Arabs? Absolutely. Do they want to just give things away, sort of like, whatever, I'm sure it'll work? No. And that's why they're so excited, most Israelis, about the Abraham Accords, because how can you make peace with other Arab countries that aren't going to fire missiles at us? And it's real peace. It's real trade. It's real tourism. 600,000 Israelis, Daryl, 600,000 have traveled to the United Arab Emirates just in the last two years since the Abraham Accords were signed just to see it. You get to go to an Arab country that's economically growing and loves israel and has kosher food now and wants to be peaceful with us like that seems so insane it's exciting and i've been on that flight many times there these these are 787 jumbo jets packed hmm. completely packed mostly with israelis mostly Emiratis aren't coming yet because that's a big cultural divide if you're an arab but anyway there's a lot of i hope that answers some of your question you've got it you had does. a lot of nuances. Yeah, that question a doctoral dissertation. I should get some sort of degree for that question.
2: <laughs> well, piece of paper's in the mail, but I'm not sure it has anything behind <laughs> it. Um, so let's turn to the Messianic community. We we don't have as much time as I'd hope, but uh, so uh, the Messianic community is in an interesting place because they are a religious minority in a country that has uh, that has. Um, that has very Jewish origins and is committed to to uh, a Jewish way of life, um, not just ethnically but religiously. So, at least with a significant portion of its population, and with uh, that religious element having an impo- at least currently having an important political and social role in the country. So, talk about that. And per- I guess what I have in mind here is the in part the. Um, the tension that Messianics live with as Christians in Israel. So um you can parse that out however you want.
0: How many more hours did you say we have to cover that topic? <laughs> so, okay, so let's break that down in a few ways. First yeah. of all, let's start with the good news. Israel's a very robust democracy but it is a democracy. You know, I mean the fact that I was able to make aliyah with my family I'm I'm googleable. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> Professor, googleable like I'm googleable on the topic of do Jewish people need Jesus to get saved, to go to heaven, to have their sins forgiven. Absolutely and you know, I've spoken at chosen people ministry events and all kinds of uh, conferences and uh, churches all over the world. I'm not hiding that. I also believe Muslims need Jesus. I really believe all people need Jesus, but I'm not hiding that. And I'm not saying that other Jews are. I'm just saying they that may not be their calling. They may be, you know, in some other line of work, but this is what I do. It's amazing that they let me become a citizen of Israel uh, and didn't have a big, you know, you know, legal battle over it. So that's just a small but personal example to me. and and I will say, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even less, Jewish believers in Jesus, Messianic Jews, they couldn't get in intelligence units or high-level, uh, advanced, elite military units. Why? Because they were considered traitors or, or undependables. But over time, that has changed. Israeli The Israeli defense forces has discovered, hey, these Jews who believe in Jesus, they, they're strong Zionists. They believe in the country. They get it, and they want to help. And they're actually pretty good at whatever you know they do. So I had two sons who served in the Israeli Defense Forces, one of them in an intelligence unit and another one in an elite combat unit. So that's not normal historically, but it's becoming more normal in recent years. Those are the good news. And, and I think there's such openness. I would say that the whole region is experiencing a spirit of, of tolerance now, normally, and it's certainly an American evangelical ear, the word tolerance sounds like you're basically tolerating things that are wrong. And that's certainly true. Uh, Israel is tolerating, uh, actually it's embracing, uh, gay pride parades in Jerusalem and, um, and, and Tel Aviv. And, and you know, the Speaker of the House, uh, the Parliament here, whom I've met, is you know, an open homosexual. It's very interesting how it's, this country has embraced homosexuality. So that's tolerance. <laughs> uh, not a good thing. I mean, to be kind to people, even if you disagree with them, that's a good thing. Uh, but Israel's not sort of processing the biblical risks of not helping people understand what God's plan and purpose is for marriage and, and sexuality. So that's a problem. Um, but it, but that spirit of tolerance is sort of like anything goes, it's okay, whatever you think. Yeah, mostly that's bad, but it is creating the environment for two things. One, people are tolerating Messianic Jews. They're kind of curious. What do you believe? I don't believe that, but I'm kind of curious. What do you believe? That is happening, not just with our family, but all over this country. And it's it's that's a good thing. There's an openness, a curiosity. Maybe we ruled out Yeshua as the Messiah too quickly. Give me, make the case. Tell me what you think. The other piece of that, I think, is... um well I and mean, then we could go in a long that's a that's actually a long road but i'm just saying there's an openness and and there's a and there's a willingness not to beat you up or slash your tires or punch you in the face or whatever that there was a few years ago so i think that's good um and i would just say one more thing the the chosen people ministry uh and israel college of the bible partnership one for israel is there is that brand uh creating these short videos that of Jews, yourself, myself, my father, others, explaining why we believe that Jesus actually is the Messiah. And then Israelis doing that in Hebrew. The the Israeli videos have been watched more than 50 million times. Hmm. They're not 50 million uh, Hebrew speakers on the planet, so that means people are watching multiple videos. They're like Pringles. You can't eat just one, right? (laughs) This is impossible. And then on the... um, on the English language videos that you, know, you and I have been part of, that's over 200 million views. So this shows that there's a curiosity and openness, and that's good. Um, but I don't think that's going to last forever. I think we're heading towards a period of new persecution. It hasn't happened yet, mostly. But because Israel is becoming much more a, a segment of us becoming much more militantly ultra-Orthodox, and sort of demanding that sort of halakha, uh, sort of the Jewish, you know, legal system from the scriptures imposed on modern Israel, that's what they want. And most Israelis don't. So there's a civil war tension brewing. I'm not saying it's going to become violent yet, but this is a serious problem here right now, Daryl, there's a huge tension between secular and traditional and militant ultra-orthodoxy that's coming out on the political sphere. I'm afraid it might burst out into the streets, but but we should. I, I believe that prophetically we should expect more and more Jews to be open to other things, including Yeshua, but also more and more hardening. I think that the, the, the middle is dropping out. People are breaking, they're gonna break in time for Yeshua, or at least openness to him, or harshly against. Right now, you have a, a large middle, but I don't think that's going to last for, for so
2: forever. So the ultra orthodox that you're talking about really want a. Um, I'm I'm going to use this figure. I think you'll get it. Uh, I hope the listeners get it. Almost a kind of dominion approach to the role of Judaism in the country, and in such a way that it it defines what takes place, and when you lose that, you lose the 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 op- the openness uh, of the way Western democracies have generally been formed.
0: Well, that's right because we haven't really seen a theocracy right uh, you know, except in Iran. It, you have Muslim countries and that's where secular and traditional Israelis are saying, Look you ultra orthodox you're you're trying to impose almost a sharia law on us mm-hmm. and we didn't sign up for this you're a minority now you are a steadily growing minority but you're still a minority how can you impose this on us we don't believe what you believe we don't and this is a challenge because in the, in the old testament torah right law right that is that is a theocracy right, right? that's exactly what it is Um, it didn't work then, Um, it's not going to work now, and most people don't want it, and uh, the only answer to it is the New Testament. The only answer to this question is, yes, there are principles we can learn from the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, but if you apply them in a New Testament perspective, then you don't have to be kosher if you don't want to be, but you can be. You don't have—you're not going to stone your neighbor because they're committing adultery. You're not going to murder them, but you have to in the Torah system. So the Torah, you cannot impose the Torah in modern Israel. And ironically, uh, it's the Messianic believers who have the actual theological and social principles to govern. Um, they're not going to look to us to do that, so don't hold your breath. <laughs> that uh, that's
2: a great transition because one of the points that I like to make, even talking about the situation here, is, is that um, we've had the experiment where our laws align with God's desires and that gets imposed on people, and that experiment was Old Testament Israel, and it failed, and it failed to such a degree that God said, I'm going to provide a new covenant, and the new covenant is going to not do this from external law. It's going to do it from an internal heart change. What I, I, I like to refer to the Old Testament is the story of a heart transplant, only you don't change hearts. God takes the heart of stone and turns it into a heart that's open to him. You keep the same heart, it just gets changed. And so uh, in the midst of that Transfer, which Jesus is in the middle of, Yeshua is in the middle of. Um, you get the internal, uh, you get the internal clock that you need to make a healthy society.
0: Yeah, and we saw that in Europe when we saw Protestantism begin to rise. It was because you because people were rebelling against a a, a Roman Catholic legal and political and social system that forced people to do things, and yet was riddled with all kinds of hypocrisy and and legalism and corruption. And I'm not saying Protestantism can't become that. It obviously has in many ways. But there was this sense that if people are people of faith, or at least of Judeo-Christian ethic, you don't have to impose such draconian rules upon them. You can give them the freedom to make decisions in their family life, in their businesses, in their culture and they and they can choose their leaders because you're because they're probably going to pick people that are fairly decent. That is the that's the dynamic um that, that that created western democracy. I think even more I mean obviously it comes from the Greeks, but I don't think it really took off until Protestant Christianity sort of laid the moral fi- uh groundwork and framework by which you could have um, self-governing people that didn't need a heavy, heavy hand, a draconian authoritarian hand of government because they were basically following Judeo-Christian ethics in their personal lives. Therefore you could trust them not to, you know, run rampant and go, you know, go yeah, crazy. My but,
2: example here in, in the book of Acts is Ephesus in which, you know, you didn't get a law from the Ephesian city council saying we're going to outlaw magic books. Okay, What you got were people whose hearts changed who said, this isn't healthy for us, we're done with it. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, which, which is part of the explanation with, wh- with why the gospel is so central to what it is we should be about as we, as we go about our daily lives. That the only, the only change that isn't superficial is the one that comes from the inside out. And, and the one that God works from within hearts and within groups of hearts, because this isn't just an individual thing, it's a corporate thing as well, that uh, that changes the ethos of what goes on around us. And in the midst of doing that, the New Testament's also clear, and some people in the world are going to push back against that. They're not going
0: to like it. So that's
2: part yeah, of the dynamic is, and, we live in. And
0: in the Jewish world, this is what's so exciting and fascinating to me, and yet I'm amazed so many – Christian media outlets are still not even covering this. The study that you and I got to be part of about five years ago um, uh, through the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, in which we hired um, uh, LifeWay Research, the Southern Baptist uh, Research arm, to go to a real scientific study of how many Jewish people, or at least people with Jewish roots in America, are evangelicals by faith, not self-identified. And that turned out to be a number we didn't even believe and therefore we didn't publish for several months going, that can't be right, we must have made a mistake. But the number turns out to be 871,000 people with Jewish parents or grandparents in America who have evangelical theological beliefs, set aside whether they're living them or not. But the point is they believe this, that Jesus is the only way, that the Bible is their highest authority, you know, so forth, that they they have a responsibility to share their faith with others, uh, their faith in Jesus. That's an extraordinary number, almost nine hundred thousand. And when you add in Israel and Europe, you're at about a million Jews worldwide now who believe in Jesus. What that's telling us is two things: one, that the gospel does work for Jewish people, even though people like Martin Luther and others in their day thought this doesn't it's work. Impossible. You know? Yeah, right. But it also shows us that there's that that Christians, mostly in the United States, evangelicals primarily are so loving and warm towards Jews that uh because they believe that God, they are chosen of God and they, they have to choose God back but still that the Jews are part of God's plan and purpose for the world and for Israel and 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 therefore many Christians honor and love their neighbors their Jewish neighbors literally that has created a climate where Jews could at least consider could this be true they weren't able to reject, oh, my neighbor's an anti-Semite, and he's a Christian, therefore, obviously, Christianity is false. So what I'm saying is, this is a moment where Jews are more open than any time in the last 2,000 years to at least listen, read, consider, could Jesus really be the Messiah? And I think that, I, I say all that because Jews come to Israel, and Jews all over the world have all kinds of different political views. Obviously, in America, you know, seventy percent of Jews are are, are Democrats. Uh, so, you know, I'm not getting into the politics. I'm just saying, lot, wide range of views. The question is, do they have an openness to consider the claims of Jesus? Because we're, we're not trying to change their politics. We're trying to get them to consider the Messiah that came and died and rose again for us, and that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18: If you don't follow the this person you you get cut off from Israel. We don't want that to happen. So I'm just saying, to me, this is the most exciting point in the history of Jewish uh, society because there's such openness and response that most of us didn't even realize the response was that high because these are not mostly people going to Messianic congregations. They're mostly just attending evangelical congregations, and so they don't get picked up by past surveys and studies so that to me is incredibly encouraging and I believe we are now on the road significantly towards Romans 1126 where eventually all Israel gets saved I don't want to get into all the picking that all apart right now that, I'm not saying that it's a every Jew podcast, hey, this is a
2: podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah. but I'm saying if you asked us if you asked your podcast audience you know I don't know how when you started it when did you start it
2: but it's been a little over 10 years ago.
0: Okay, so 10 years ago, if you said in in 10 years there'll be a million Jews worldwide who believe in Jesus, I think you might have had your tenure revoked. Like, that would (laughs) seem so, like, sure in the eschatological. We didn't believe it when we got the number.
2: I mean, as you said, you know, when we heard that it, it was this large, and of course I've always heard uh, very recently that the amount of Messianic uh, presence in Israel is unprecedented as well. I mean, when you start out with 23 and you're now in a multi-thousands, that's a different deal. Joel, I, I just want to thank you for kind of giving us a glimpse at kind of what's going on. It's clear that we've actually run over a little bit, which is nice, uh, but it's clear that we've only... Uh, I, I love using this metaphor on the podcast because I use it regularly. We only scrape the top of the iceberg, but, uh, but it's, uh, you've helped us to get a portrait of kind of what's going on and where Israel fits in the Middle East and kind of the, 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 the variety of tensions that have to be dealt with. It reminds us to pray for the country and for people in the country and for the Messianic presence in the country, et cetera. So I really thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
0: Well, it's an honor, Daryl, always, and I look forward to seeing you uh, here in Jerusalem or or in Dallas, uh, Lord willing. We're
2: headed your way this summer, so we're looking forward to it and uh, uh, with a good visit. And it's been, you know, it's been several years because of COVID, and so I'm looking forward to going back.
0: Well, you're always welcome. Bless you.
2: Right. We thank you for being a part of The Table. We thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us again soon. If you're interested in other podcasts related to The Table, you can go to voice.dts.edu slash table and you can see the more than 600 hours of material podcasting that we've done over the last decade. I invite you to do that, and I certainly invite you to join us again soon.
1: For listening to The Table Podcast, Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well.